America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Singapore, a key partner of the U.S. and Southeast Asia. Our guest is Dr. Vivian Balakrishnan, the Minister for Foreign Affairs of Singapore since 2015. He remains one of the most active foreign ministers in the Asia-Pacific. A graduate of the National University of Singapore's Medical School, Minister Balakrishnan is a trained ophthalmologist who served as medical director of the Singapore National Eye Center, CEO of Singapore General Hospital, and commanding officer of the 2nd Combat Support Hospital of the Singapore Armed Forces. In 2001, he was elected to Singapore's parliament, representing the People's Action Party. Across two decades of public service, Minister Balakrishnan has held several ministerial appointments, facilitated negotiations that led to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, and spearheaded Singapore's Smart Nation Initiative, including the implementation of Singapore's national digital identity. As Minister for Foreign Affairs, Minister Balakrishnan oversaw the historic 2018 summit in Singapore between the leaders of the U.S. and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and led the operation to bring home Singaporeans stranded abroad during the COVID-19 pandemic. Singapore is a city-state in Southeast Asia, a little red dot, as it is often nicknamed, slightly less than half the size of Rhode Island that commands outsized importance on the global political map. As an island off the edge of the Malay Peninsula, bordering the narrow Strait of Malacca, Singapore lies at the narrowest point of a critical trade route between Europe and East Asia. In 1819, Sir Thomas Stamford Raffles, an agent of the British East India Company, established a trading post on the island to compete against the Dutch influence in the region. Over the next 50 years, the population grew 80-fold, fueled by immigration from China and India. Singapore was governed by the Governor-General of India, according to the 1826 Straits Settlement, and later became a crown colony ruled from London. After the Suez Canal was opened in 1869, trade volume and European demand for Southeast Asian tin and rubber grew, and Singapore prospered as an entrepot trading hub. In February 1942, the Japanese Imperial Army invaded Singapore in the north via the Malay Peninsula. They captured British-held Singapore in one week and began an occupation that brutalized, starved, and cut off the Singaporean population from the rest of the world. Although the British returned to accept the imperial forces' surrender in 1945, the pre-war relations between the colonial power and the local population had become unsustainable. Post-war British political plans for Malay excluded Singapore from the Malayan Union and later from the Federation of Malaya. Singapore held its first general election in 1959, and the People's Action Party, led by Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, won by a landslide, and has remained in power ever since. In 1963, Singapore briefly joined the Federation of Malaysia, 
Following two years of growing political and economic differences, Singapore became an independent nation on August 9, 1965. The United States recognized Singapore's independence in 1965 and has maintained strong diplomatic relations for over 50 years. Singapore's economic and geopolitical importance grew throughout the 20th century, fueled by international trade and a strong economy of shipbuilding, oil refining, manufacturing and services. Singapore boasts Asia's highest and the world's eighth highest per capita GDP, double that of the European Union. In the 2019 and 2020 World Bank Human Capital Index, Singapore ranked first in the world in human capital development. True to its roots as an island at the crossroads of the world's trade, Singapore's port is the busiest in the world by cargo traffic. Singapore was a founding member of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, which seeks to bring stability and prosperity to the region. Singapore is a strong and long-standing international economic, security, and defense partner of the United States. In 1990, Singapore's founding Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew and the then U.S. Vice President Dan Quayle signed a Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, regarding United States' use of facilities in Singapore, which has underpinned the United States' security presence in the region for over 30 years. The MOU was first extended in 2005 via a protocol of amendment, and again in 2019 for another 15 years, a clear testament to Singapore's enduring support for the U.S.'s critical role in Southeast Asia and across the Indo-Pacific region. In 2005, a Strategic Framework Agreement, SFA, between the two countries elevated bilateral defense relations, recognizing Singapore as a major security cooperation partner of the United States, the only country with this status. Economic relations are also robust and growing. In 2004, the United States and Singapore entered into a free trade agreement, the first ever such agreement between the United States and an Asian country. Singapore is the second largest Asian investor in the U.S., and the U.S. is the largest foreign investor in Singapore. The relationship is flourishing as both countries expand cooperation into new areas, including cybersecurity, supply chains, the digital economy, sustainable development, and space. We welcome Minister Balakrishnan to discuss Singapore's economic, technical, and social innovations, the role of countries in the Asia-Pacific in great power competition, and how to preserve peace and promote prosperity in a global rules-based order. Minister Vivian Balakrishnan, great to see you again. Welcome to Battlegrounds. Well, great to be with you again. It's been a few years. <laughs> it's been a few years. And I can't thank you enough for your positive leadership and you know, as a, the Singaporean uh, foreign minister for seven years, you know, but then also within ASEAN and in the U.S.-Singaporean relationship. I mean, you advanced it tremendously. I learned a great deal from you. It's great to see you again. And now I, I you know, we get our viewers get a chance to learn from you and your perspective on really Singapore- the Indo-Pacific, but really what's happening globally. So, you know, I'll begin with U.S.-Singaporean relations. How do you view U.S.-Singaporean relations today? Uh, what is on your agenda for the bilateral relationship? Well, I think first you need to understand how tiny Singapore is. <laughs> Imagine if downtown Manhattan was ejected by New York State. 
<laughs> and had to be an independent nation with its own army, navy, air force, yeah. water, power supply, and the rest right. of it. So the first point is to understand how tiny, how vulnerable, and how we're only just celebrating our 57th anniversary right next month yes so if i my views therefore reflect the perspective of a tiny city state multiracial in the heart of southeast asia with a very short history and i would put it to you this way the ultimate winner of the second world war was the united states of america what was unusual about the united states was its generosity at the end of the Second World War, at its point of victory, to envision and underwrite a multilateral world order. The United Nations, the WTO, the World Bank, the IMF, setting up a world in which it would not be winner-take-all, a world based on liberal economic principles, a world where free trade could flourish, world where multinational corporations could exploit global supply chains, search for scale and opportunity. I think certainly the second half of the last century was a golden age, in particular for America, but also for the rest of the world. So for us, given our very short history, uh, the institutions, the rules, the norms, and the multilateral organizations gave us enormous opportunity. We were in a part of Southeast Asia that was non-communist. Going back to 1965, it was not at all preordained right. which flavor right. would win. Fortunately, we were on the right side, and America's presence in our part of the world gave us enormous opportunity. So I speak first as a country that benefited. In real numbers, America has more invested in Southeast Asia than it has in India, China, and Japan combined. Most people aren't even aware of that. And in fact, the bulk of those investments in Southeast Asia are in Singapore. So, you know, this is not flattery or empty words. This is spoken from a perspective and you know, supported by data. Now, although I said Singapore was a major beneficiary of Pax Americana, in fact, the biggest beneficiary, especially over the last 40 years, was in fact China. Yeah. Right. And the fact that never before in history have you had more than a billion people suddenly come online, mm -hmm. connected to a global economy with global opportunities, it's never happened before. Right. So the last 40 years, uh, I think the rise of China was unstoppable. Mm -hmm. It resulted from their own you know, willingness to work right. really hard to get organized sure. and to seize opportunities. But I would also say, also because of America's contribution to this world order. And welcoming China into that order with the opening in the 70s, allowing the Chinese people you know, to overcome you know, the, the cultural revolution and the great leap forward and all, I think the, you know, the pain that was inflicted on them through brutal Japanese occupation and then the Chinese Communist Party. So I guess we have a lot to talk about maybe in terms of maybe it's shifting back, China shifting back to the 
closed period of Mao Zedong rather than the opening period of Deng Xiaoping. But um, what do you see as the trajectory now then in that uh, in, within China and implications for maybe a potential reversal of what we've seen in terms of the period you described of lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, a more integrated global economic system. Um, it seems to be reversing a bit. Some people are declaring globalization over, for example, Minister. I don't think so. And let me explain why. Uh, China basically missed the Industrial Revolution. And for that, they, we know the Industrial Revolution began in the UK, Europe, and of course the ultimate heir and winner was the United States. So for the last 250 years, a key missing player was China. In fact, in Asia, the first country to industrialize during the Meiji Restoration was Japan. And with harvesting the fruits of the Industrial Revolution, then came economic and military might. So China still views the events of the last 100, 200 years as years of humiliation. Yeah. So from their perspective, what is happening now as they rise to become a competitive peer power with America is actually a reversion to the norm. That if you look in terms of millennia, the Chinese GDP at that time was about 30% or more of global GDP. So, so the first point is they see this as a reversion to the norm. From an American perspective, which by definition is much shorter, you're talking about centuries rather than millennia, I think this is the first time ever you are facing a peer power able to compete in all dimensions. Now, this is also different from your past interactions with European powers because it's China is really a civilizational state. So the way they organize themselves, the way they perceive their position in the world is really quite different uh, from that of a typical you know, American or, or, or European perspective. So I think one element which America may have been disappointed with is, for instance, if you go back to 2001 and the entry of China to the WTO, which mm -hmm. America supported, right. uh, if you believe that economic liberalization is going to somehow lead to a complete social transformation in China, I think that was wishful thinking. Right. They were always going to run things in their own, you know, in their own image. So to speak, you know, you know, Minister, you're making me think of a, a quotation from the visionary founder of, of of your nation, Lee Kuan Yew. You know, he he made a comment at one stage where he said, you know, competition between the United States and China is inevitable, but conflict is not. And I think it's immensely important for us to mm. distinguish between the Chinese people, the Chinese nation, even, and the actions and policies of the Chinese Communist Party, who, as you know, has this kind of Han-dominated self-conception, right, of, of, of mm. a, a party that wants to maintain its exclusive grip on power internally, but also to advance its statist mercantilist model internationally in a way that jeopardizes the, the world order you described that has lifted so many people out of poverty mm. and promoted prosperity and security uh, across the Indo-Pacific region and, and beyond. How do you see the competition between 
not just Washington and Beijing, mm. but between the free world and Beijing at this moment? And what are the most important elements of that competition? And how do we avoid it becoming a conflict? That's a profound question. That's a, it's, right, it's a tough question. <laughs> if, if, we, if we set aside political parties for the time being, and we ask ourselves, in a post-industrial era, or in fact now as we are on the cusp of a new revolution, the digital revolution, and the way that's going to transform the means of production. And we ask ourselves, what then are the ingredients for success? Number one is human talent, lots of it. Number two is a system that's fair and meritocratic so that people with the wherewithal and the energy and the right. enterprise can succeed and be can, rewarded. Can I just tell you that we're in the yes. Hoover Tower and Herbert Hoover would love to hear you say that. Well, but please continue. <laughs> no, I mean, we're, look, we're, we're believers in that, right? right. So you got to have a system that's fair, right. maximizes opportunities for people to fulfill their potential. And then the other element that you need is peace. Because without stability and peace, right. uh, you can't invest in the software and the hardware right. needed to unlock those opportunities. Nobody's getting educated right. in a war zone. Right? So, yeah. so now let's look at the two key engines for the world right now. And it's the United States on one hand, China on the other hand. And the other one, which I think we don't pay enough attention to, is Europe. If you look at the combined sure. GDP of Europe, with or without the UK, right. it's in the same peer league mm -hmm. as or, China Or Southeast Asia, for that matter, if you look so, at it together. It's Southeast Asia, we've got a population of about 680 million. Mm -hmm. Combined GDP of only $2.8 trillion, but we believe it can double, it will quadruple over the next 10, 20 years. So yes, that also becomes one of the tent poles mm -hmm. in this multipolar right. world. But coming back to competition and conflict, um, in an ideal world, the two of you, the US and China, would get along. Mm -hmm. And the reason you need to get along is not just for our sake of peace in our part of the world, um, but because never before in history, have two powers been as closely intertwined as the US and China. And that's why the Thucydides trap is somewhat self-limiting a paradigm to use. Right, and, and this is just for our viewers, this is Graham Allison's view of previous conflicts where, where you know, a, a status quo power resists the rise of a rising power, and, and it, it, it has been misinterpreted, I believe, to, to pose a false dilemma Mm -hmm. between either destructive war or accommodation and complacency uh, yes. against a, an aggressive power. Yes. So I think it doesn't necessarily apply right. to this situation. And, and then let's use, use another example. During the Cold War and the containment of the Soviet Union, but in effect, the Soviet Union was existing in its own economic sphere. It was not intertwined, interinvested, using the same application stack of the Industrial Revolution as the US and China. You look at your currency flows, you, you look at the uh, you know, investments on both sides. 
this is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. right? so, so the point I want to make is that the relationship between the US and China is actually very unique yeah. in the world for its size and for the way you are interlinked. Now, having said that, we can't be wishful and just say, well, interdependence alone is a formula for peace. I think recent events in Europe have just shown that. Well, this is, of course, what I wanted to talk with you about as well, is to bring in the Russia's aggression against Ukraine uh, and, and, and to do so by way of this friendship that supposedly has no limits between China and, and Russia uh, with the announcement they made just on the eve of the invasion and just prior to the Beijing Olympics. Um, we've seen the consequences of an abrupt rending of economic relations with Russia. It seems to me, looking at the pattern of Chinese aggression, we have to at least consider the possibility that that will occur with China and mitigate risk. But I'd like to ask you about what are the lessons of maybe Russia's aggression of Ukraine, what the world's response, what Singapore's, I think, extraordinary response has been in terms of sanctions imposed and, and the strong diplomatic stance that you and the prime minister have taken. Are there implications for how we regard China now and and the risk of, of maybe a rending of economic and financial relationships analogous to those that have occurred with Russia? Well, if we come back first to the fundamental variable, which is US and China, as, as I said, I do not believe that conflict is inevitable. Never. And it's certainly not desirable. No, and, right, and right. we have to be. I mean, we, right. we can't believe that, right? No, we but having to, said no. that, it's also wishful to just believe that this mutual interdependence will somehow lead lead to peace. I think it requires careful and hard work. Uh, the first thing I would say is it would be good if the two presidents could actually meet face mm -hmm. to face. I mean, despite all the advances in video conference technology, especially yeah. over COVID, there is no substitute. I don't, I don't want to put a damper on this, but uh, President Biden did we meet with Vladimir Putin. It didn't seem to help, but I, maybe maybe it would help with Xi Jinping. No, I, I believe it's <laughs> no. I was going to say I believe it's essential. That that's oh. first point. Now, the next, it's direct communications is not necessarily meaning you're going to agree onto everything, but at least minimize the room for miscalculations, sure. misunderstandings, Absolutely. and miscommunication. So right. that's one. The next thing is to understand that uh, you can't work on the basis that this is your sworn enemy and that there's absolutely no prospect mm -hmm. for peace and that the other partner has to completely bend or be transformed into your image. Mm -hmm. So both sides need to understand that they will have to make room for each other. Yeah. But at the same time, whilst you give and open up the option for effective cooperation, but you also have some guardrails or some fences for consequences if one or the other doesn't play according to the rules. So you need both you know, avenues for demonstrable advantage from working together and also clearly defined areas where there will be penalties if you know, agreed upon rules of engagement right. are not complied with. And it's important for both sides to telegraph this unambiguously and clearly. And that's why I'm saying this. It's necessary for the staff work to be done. As a military officer, you know what sure. I mean, right? Yes. The staff work to be done. And then the commanders-in-chief need to have this right. direct 
uh, exchange. And then we have to hope that both America and China understand that this is a time more than ever before and we need global leadership. We're still dealing with a pandemic. And quite frankly, I think our global response to COVID-19 left a lot to be desired. Mm -hmm. We are dealing with climate change and we are dealing with a digital revolution. We are dealing with the social political impacts on inequality of this and, new revolution. Add a food crisis now. Right? Food right. and energy crisis. Energy crisis right? yeah. All these require the United States and China to play an outsized role to help secure these global public goods. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is, you know, you, we can't afford a conflict. You, at the same time, cannot assume in you know, a lovey-dovey everything is fine. Sure. You do need to have areas where you can cooperate with demonstrable advantage. You do also need to have areas where you say these are no-go areas. And then understand that you've got a critical role to secure global common goods. Now, if that can be done, uh, we could be on the verge of a new golden era. Now, if that can't be done or can't be done completely, and I think it'll be messy mm -hmm. for quite a few years, then we'll have to be prepared for a bumpy ride. Now, coming to Russia yes. and Ukraine. And Singapore's very strong stance, in, in, I think, against this well, brutal invasion, I think was greatly appreciated across the world. I mean, uh, well, we did so not because we were taking sides, but because we are upholding principle. And again, it's because we are a tiny city state so but when Lee Kuan you called the little red dot right? <laughs> well we'll always be tiny but when a big neighbor starts saying they're going to redraw boundaries on the basis of historical errors and crazy decisions alarm bells go off sure for us right. for us the UN Charter sovereignty independence territorial integrity absolutely essential for our survival mm -hmm. If this precedent is allowed to stand, it's enormously inimical right. to tiny states like us. So we took a stand on principle. Uh, and I hope, and I, I think the Russians also understand why we took uh, that stand. But leaving that aside, I think what's happening there, meaning the Russian versus Ukraine, its impact on Europe, even its impact on NATO and on the United States a demonstration of resolve. I, I think it's quite clear now that there have been strategic errors made right. on the Russian side. I think it's pretty clear Russia expected disunity and got a lot more unity. No, I think they the expected, number one, the Ukrainians to fall quickly. Yeah. Number two, Europe to remain divided and dependent. Number three, America to be impotent and number four, NATO, to be demonstrably irrelevant. Right. On all these counts, I think things have not gone according to plan. But having said that, the other way this crisis feeds into global instability is that it complicates the relationship between the United States and China. Mm -hmm. um, let's just bear in mind that Russia's GDP at the moment is smaller than that of South Korea. But it is a major nuclear power. It has more nuclear warheads, I think, than even the United States. Yes. Right. So it is a big deal. 
But in terms of the long-term strategic outlook for the globe, it is the relationship between the US and China. And we hope that these other crises don't derail that more fundamental relationship. You know, Minister, I, I want to really move on to some other global implications, but if you want to just stick with China for one moment, you've seen mm -hmm. the range of aggressive actions that the Chinese Communist Party has taken, e even after the invasion of Ukraine, but really going back to the beginning of COVID with this wolf warrior diplomacy that has become more and more mm -hmm. aggressive. You saw the the economic coercion of, of Australia uh, and now Lithuania, for, for example, and the aggressive military actions on the, the border with India, within the South China Sea, uh, at the threats toward Taiwan. Do you think, is it possible that China could be learning from the difficulty that Russia is having in Ukraine in a way that China may moderate behavior? I didn't mention you know, the extinguishment of human freedom in, in Hong Kong or what's happening in, in terms of you know, the campaign of slow genocide against the Uyghurs in, in uh, Xinjiang. But is there a possibility that Xi Jinping, who seems to have been preparing China for conflict with, you know, with his rhetoric of the, 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 of the Korean War being portrayed as the war of American aggression and so forth, do you think there could be a change among the Chinese leadership? I, I really think, I believe the U.S. government is looking for areas of cooperation, but it seems to me that those areas are being systematically shut down by the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party has been in power since 1949. As far as Chinese dynasties go, that's a very short time. Yeah. As I said, the key narrative, national narrative for China right now is for it to take its national rejuvenation, right? Yes. rightful place mm -hmm. in the global world order. Right? The, the second thing which you need to realize from a perspective of a political party that's been in power for a long time. The greatest threat to long-term rule by a political party, regardless of whether it's a democracy or a communist, the greatest threat is, is corruption mm -hmm. and incompetence. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that he is trying to stamp out corruption and to show a demonstrable level of competence mm -hmm. in administering the country, you realize that actually makes perfect sense from the point of view of a party leader who hopes the party will remain in, in power. power, exclusive power. So, so what I'm saying is, you know, I am not interpreting things in black and white or moralistic terms, yeah. but in terms of what national impulses, right. what a partisan imperative is, and therefore. Uh, many of China's actions are actually taken not for foreign policy reasons. Yeah, right. It's Internal. at home. Internal, it's yeah. all politics is local, and it reflects reflects that. What the Chinese people, at least from my interactions with them, want they want to secure their their economic position. Uh, they do have considerable challenges with de with demography. Mm -hmm. Their workforce has peaked. They're right. now going to age, you know. Before at, they grow rich enough to grow out of the middle income and that, trap. And therein, that reveals why China is such in such a hurry. Yeah. Because you see, if you grow old after you've become rich, it's Japan as mm -hmm. an example. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, it may not be the most exciting and dynamic place at the moment, but it's a 
perfectly civilized, right. wonderful place, right, right, Japan. China knows that the demographic wind has turned against it. But if you look at its per capita GDP, it hasn't reached the same level that Japan did in 1991, mm -hmm. when similar demographic trends right. reversed. So understand the Chinese urgent sense of urgency sure. yeah. uh, to become rich before they become old. On the global stage, I think what they remain deeply concerned with is this fear of containment, fear of encirclement. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, depending on where you sit, you, you can view this as uh, an insecure power, or you can view this as a power that's taking nothing for granted and mm -hmm. just trying to secure its place in the world. So I, I'm just trying to give you a, a, no, a different take. Well, that's the on, whole purpose on, on of the situation. series is to, is to really gain an appreciation for the perspective of others and, and seeing the, this competition from the perspective of the Chinese as Lee Kuan Yew did brilliantly throughout his life of looking at the US and the nature of its society and China and the nature of its society and political system. And, and, and I think his brilliant analysis still holds true today. I, you know, I, I agree with you. I wish that we could find more areas of cooperation with entities that are not implementing the, the party's aggressive agenda. Uh, but I'm maybe not as optimistic as you are about the, the ability to do that. Well, but because, time will tell. But you know, time will tell. Time right? will tell. So, because so in the we end, don't want to give up on it, for sure. No, you mustn't give up. Because at the end, look, what was the secret recipe for America? You had a continent secured by two oceans, mm -hmm. two good neighbors, blessed with enormous resources. You had almost free immigration from Europe. Right. You had a society which had incredible ability to invent, reinvent itself, to reward innovation and enterprise. That's why you became right. great. Yeah. And the question now, when economic means of production have transformed, where do you see America going in the next 20 years? Right. And the answer is, if America can invest in itself, get its mojo back, mm -hmm. invest in your infrastructure, and more important, invest in your people. If you can, and if you can get immigration policy right. Yeah. You know, China sits on top of a pyramid of 1.4 billion people. And mm -hmm. you could say, well, America's only got 300 million. But America, at, at its best, harvests from probably half the world who would want to move here if they had a chance. Absolutely. So if you've yeah. got, can you imagine, if you've got immigration policy right, if you've got domestic policy right, if you invest in infrastructure, education, training, Absolutely. reducing inequality. Mm -hmm. you know, a mistake that many people outside America make is to assume that America is in terminal decline. Yeah. Singapore does not believe that America is in terminal decline. Right. So we don't bet against America. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you that I appreciate that hopeful message. I do believe that democracies do have the the ability for self-correction and improvement, short of revolution. You know, and you mentioned so many important aspects of success, and I, I don't think anybody can can characterize Singapore as anything but a tremendous success. If you just look at the history from emerging from brutal occupation from Japan, gaining independence the vision for the country of, of your founder 
and then realizing that vision in I think what has, is the most innovative country, city in the world. Your portfolio before your seven years as foreign minister was in, in the area of integrating technology into Singapore to make it really an, an, an ideal place to live, to work, to generate ideas, to educate, to bring people from different ethnic backgrounds together, which Singapore has done brilliantly. Can you maybe explain some of the keys to success as you see it for Singapore and how those relate to, to other countries that are facing challenges that Singapore may, may have faced you know, in the I, past? I, I know I've said this too many times, but again, just bear in mind, we're very small and very young. And uh, you know, it's like when you ask the Chinese, I think it was Joe and I was asked about <laughs> the right. French Revolution, and he said, it's too early to tell. Right, right, right. So I always start with the fact that we're yeah. too small, Right. and too young for any definitive We're all works in progress, right? All of our Absolutely. nations are. Absolutely. Next point is, what you see in Singapore is actually an act of desperate imagination mm -hmm. because of existential vulnerabilities. Right. It sounds almost paranoid, but maybe Intel was right that only the paranoid will survive. <laughs> so for us, an unlikely nation that was given independence in the expectation that we would fail the first order of business was how to make a living. Secondly, how to live with one another, given the diversity sure. of the society and our diverse ethnic, linguistic, and religious heritage. In contrast to some of your neighbors, right, who took a different approach. Well, but again, what I'm saying is a lot of us, the approaches that we took were actually born out of necessity. <laughs> Right? It wasn't because we had the luxury to think of, well, should we choose A, B, C, or D? No. In reality, we never, we were always operating under constrained options. But coming back to this um, fact, you know, I once asked Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, as we were sailing in Marina Bay, looking at the landscape, the, the cityscape. Sure. And I asked him, I turned to him, Mr. Lee, how do you, how do you feel? watching this beautiful city emerge. And all he did was turn to me, look at me, and answered gruffly, the hardworking and disciplined people built all this. Yeah. Right. Hardworking and disciplined people. Yeah. And if you've been to Singapore, you've interacted with Singaporeans, yeah. you know that no right. one works as hard Absolutely. or as organized or as disciplined as yeah. we are. And not right. because we are somehow inherently better, yeah. but really because we have no choice. Mm -hmm. I come back to, again, uh, America's role in our part of the world. The fact that you stood against communism and paid for it in blood and treasure in the 50s, 60s, gave us time yeah. to prove that this model worked. The fact that you opened markets and made technology available to us, gave us an opportunity to upskill our labor force and allow us to compete and provide services and be relevant to the world. That is why we continue to tell China or Europe or Russia and all the other powers that we believe that all of you have legitimate interests in Asia, in Southeast Asia. And we want all of you to continue to play a constructive role. And it is that interplay between the major powers in Southeast Asia that gives us relevance and gives us opportunities. One 
area where I wish America had made a different decision is on the TPP. Okay, the I, you know, I'd, like, I'd like to talk with you about that, about America's role in the region, Southeast Asia, but across the Indo-Pacific. And we're talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the Trump administration decided not to join. But of course, we have to say that the Hillary Clinton administration would not have I was going to say that right. too. Right. She, she also backed <laughs> right. away from it as, right. candid, as the candidate. Right. So, so I understand. <laughs> Look, frankly, every American leader or strategist who I've discussed this with, none of them makes a strategic argument against the TPP. But every one of them has told me it can't be done for domestic political yeah. reasons. But for what it's worth, let me still make the pitch. Sure. In Asia, trade strategy. You want to have ships or aircraft there, but you must have interests to protect. What are those interests in Asia? It is your economic interest. Now, what better vehicle or symbol or icon of America's economic engagement with our part of the world than something as ambitious as the TPP? It remains the gold standard in multilateral uh, free trade agreements in terms of its protection for environment, for labor, for intellectual property protection. You know, it's still it's still the to me it's right. still the gold standard. So it's a pity that for domestic political reasons America couldn't right. consummate something which in fact it was instrumental to envisioning and to negotiating. Anyway, the door's still open, so for what well, is and, uh, what, Could you comment then on what do you think of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and uh, which is an effort to compensate for the inability to do a multilateral comprehensive trade agreement, but take elements of it? I know there are concerns about access to the U.S. It's, market, but, yes. but what's your overall assessment, and is it a step in the right direction? It's a step in the right direction. It's, not, it's certainly not a step that's complete. Uh, I would still much prefer you came back to the TPP. You know, it's as if you've built a wonderful condominium. The right. penthouse is still empty. <laughs> America is absent. But in the meantime, there are others who are coming on board. And we will have to welcome others coming on board because when we started this journey for the TPP, in fact, it started as four tiny Pacific countries, Singapore, Brunei, New Zealand, and Chile trying to build links across the Pacific. When America and Japan came in, it completely transformed the equation. But actually what we are really after was to create a free trade area of the Asia Pacific. Now, if you added the TPP and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, mm -hmm. which is another large-scale uh, free trade agreement between the 10 ASEAN countries, China, Japan, Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, now, we were also hoping that India would have been a part of it, but again, for its own reasons. There's a lot of hurdles, yes. But can you imagine if these two things were put together, we would have an enormous free trade area, yeah. trans-Pacific, in the right. fullest sense of the word, with the two biggest economic engines and a part of the world which is set to take off mm -hmm. over the next two, two decades or so. Right. Um, and we believe, or we hoped, that that would be a formula for peace and prosperity in a real I sense of the word, you know, not, not a matter of uh, wishful thinking, but real opportunity. You know, I, 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 can't, I can't resist but just pointing out the fact yes. that it is Xi Jinping, though, who wants to create the dual circulation economy, 
that creates you know dependencies on China while he's insulated right from any kind of dependencies financial or economic on on other nations or supply chains that could be made vulnerable in response to Chinese aggression I mean I are you are you worried about any kind of a trade agreement in the future being subverted by China's mercantilist model and its geostrategic designs. And I think that's what's holding the U.S. back in a large measure. There are concerns, right, about transitions in the global economy that affected Americans. Many Americans lost jobs and manufacturing yes. jobs in particular. And there's a great deal of resentment for this unchecked globalization, which makes it politically infeasible. But also from a geoeconomic perspective, are you concerned about China's role in these larger well, frameworks? I, I, I would take a step back and say that actually all of us believers in free trade failed to make the pitch mm. to our electorate about the benefits of it. Second, the most important qualification for a trade negotiator is not the word games you play with the, your, your, your counterpart, but understanding your own domestic economy. Look, in sure. any trade liberalization, there are winners and losers. And you do need to look after people right. who are worse off. Right. So it comes back to the fact that you really can't pursue foreign policy and trade policy without settling your own house right. in order first. And because we failed to make the case and because the people who are disadvantaged by wide-scale globalization were not adequately taken care of, we have this pushback. So what I'm saying is that, again, it's not so much a U.S. versus China problem as sure. it is a domestic problem that we right. And, and it's just, this applies to all of us, including Singapore. Right. Getting your social safety nets right, getting education right, getting infrastructure right, right. are all absolutely essential. Yeah. And of course, the global economy is under tremendous pressure now with big transitions, yes. energy and security, uh, vulnerable supply chains. We saw the beginning of COVID, but now especially uh, after the invasion of Ukraine, yes. A, a what some people are calling farmageddon, right? This this very serious food crisis, yes. um, and of course there are emerging technologies that are quite important yes. to transitions to a data-driven global economy. Yes. What what is your vision? Well, two two taglines. Yeah. Uh, we used in the past pre-COVID, we used to say, "Let's keep our inventories just in time." I think we've right. all learned now, just in case. Yeah. Right. Resilience rather resilience than complete matters, efficiency. Right. And you have to be prepared to pay an insurance premium for resilience. Mm -hmm. If you look at, I mean, you don't want to be too critical on Germany, but when I was there and I asked them, how many LNG terminals do you have? And they told me zero. Right. Well, in retrospect, it's quite clear now. Sure. They should have been prepared to pay a price for resilience. But in a sense, if you look across Europe, Europe enjoyed a peace dividend for 75 years. And suddenly they now realize, well, actually, Europe too has to pay the premium for defense, for supply chains. And whilst you know you do want a world, you don't want a completely autarkic world. Right. If you first it's not there's there's only one country that can be completely self-sufficient that I know of, and that's the United States of America. But even then you will pay higher consumer prices. Sure. Right. But setting aside the United States of America, the rest of us, autark complete autarky is not possible. So you do need to have global supply chains. You do want to be prepared to pay a little bit of insurance to make them more resilient. But if the world bifurcates or fragments 
uh, this on its own will be inflationary because the cost of procuring supplies will go up. This will be a world which is more brittle because we'll have less interdependence and mutual interest in each other's welfare. Uh, so I hope, you know, we, we don't throw the baby out with the bath water. But food, energy, pharmaceuticals, vaccines, sure. all these, uh, I think all of us now have to pay attention to just in case. Absolutely. Minister, I want to I end on a, an up note and wonder if you might share with us what's happening in Singapore. What's the vision for the future? It's an incredibly innovative city. I've noticed, you know, the the the, uh, the application of new technologies, the new infrastructure and transportation, vertical airlift, battery powered transportation. Now, I mean, it, it's it, it's extraordinary. Whenever you visit Singapore, how much has changed? How dynamic the city is? You have a political transition coming up. Could you just share with our viewers what to expect? Uh, in the future from Singapore and, and what they're going to see there? Well, some things haven't changed. We still remain small. We are still highly exposed to what happens on the global stage. So as I said, peace right. between uh, <laughs> China and the US, uh, a stable Europe, a rising India, and a Southeast Asia that despite our diversity, Mm -hmm. can remain relevant and cooperative. And, and cooperative. If all those things work out, there are great opportunities for us in Singapore. But again, we operate on the basis that it starts at home. So what we're trying to achieve in this next phase, even as we make the leadership transition, is to make sure it remains a fairer, it becomes an even fairer society a greener society, a smarter uh, nation, one which is, you know, maintains our unity and cohesion. We're comfortable in our own skins with all our diversity. Right. We are relevant to all the major powers. We are economically competitive. Uh, we have made this green transition uh, as part of our, not only as part of our efforts to fulfilling our responsibilities to climate change, but also because we believe there's great opportunity. For energy security for energy and, and security, economic growth. Yes, and going green. And then the fact that the digital revolution is upon us. Mm -hmm. And look, you know, we have one, I think we have perhaps one of the highest robot densities in the world. Now, how to translate that into economic opportunity and competitiveness and good wages right. and a better life for our people. Right. So it's, it's a period of actually enormous excitement because there's both danger and opportunity. Right. Uh, but if we do it right, you know, it's another set of strong wind behind our sails. Well, Minister, I can't thank you enough for being with us. On behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for helping us advance what we call strategic empathy in this series, uh, as well as to learn more about battlegrounds that are important to building a better future for generations to come. A real pleasure to be with you again. Thank, thank you. Thank you, thank you so you much. Thank you for this chance. You, Always happy to see you. Thank you, Minister. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.